Stand by for action. So exciting, the audience will stop and cheer. So delighting, it will run for 50 years. So exciting, the audience will stop and cheer. So delighting, it will run for 50 years. My name's Carolyn Bailey and it's my pleasure to welcome you to AR Zone podcast number 33 featuring David Pierce. Joining us today in the conversation will be fellow AR Zone admins Tim Geyer, Ronnie Lee and Roger Yates. David Pearce is an abolitionist, transhumanist philosopher and vegan advocate who lives in the UK. Abolitionism, as David uses the term, is a philosophy and a social movement dedicated to eliminating suffering in all sentient beings. Although he promotes veganism as a key component of abolitionism, David thinks the most significant advances towards eliminating suffering will require high-tech solutions such as genetic engineering and nanotechnology. Thanks for being here, David, and welcome to AR Zone. Thank you very much, Carolyn. It's good to be here. You're very welcome. David, I'd like to start today by asking, many vegan advocates take Professor Tom Reagan to heart when he says that when it comes to other animals, we should just let them be. Your approach sounds radically different to that. Would you please explain your views for our listeners? Yes, well, in view of the way most humans through most of history have treated non-human animals, I can very much uh, sympathise and understand that view, that the kindest thing we could do to non-human animals was simply to leave them alone. And indeed, I think uh, perhaps our greatest priority now is uh, closing factory farms and the death camps. Uh, that, that, that should be our priority. However, even if we were to phase out factory farming and slaughterhouses, there would still be horrific suffering that persisted in the rest of the living world. Many billions of non-human animals each year would uh, starve to death, die of parasitism, disease, be eaten alive by predators. I don't want to go on about the, uh, the nasty side of nature, but it really is extraordinarily nasty. And if in the long run, we want to phase out any form of involuntary suffering altogether, we will have to apply the same principles of the welfare state that we do for vulnerable members of our own society and members of other races to members of other species. Moreover, it can't really be done on an individual piecemeal basis. If let's say there is a, a famine in, uh, in which many uh, non-human animals are dying and one feeds, one feeds the herbivores, let's say, who are dying, then there is a population explosion and simply more suffering. So yes, looking, look, looking ahead to in, in, into later this century, we will have the technology to surveil and micromanage uh, the living world 
in extraordinarily intimate uh, detail. Every cubic meter of the planet will be accessible to uh, uh, control, manipulation, stewardship. Now, one might feel that, well, we should take a completely hands-off approach uh, and leave uh, living organisms just to, uh, get to, to get on with it. But I think any animal advocate who, if before their eyes were to see a, a dog or a pig or a chicken, let's say, drowning in, a, uh, in the garden pond, would regard it as their duty to, to rescue and to help. And later this century, our position is going to be, uh, far-fetched as it sounds, analogous to uh, intervening to rescue uh, a, a, a drowning pig or, or chicken or mouse in a garden pond. That level of intimacy. I'm aware of the fact that this is a very controversial position, but when uh, abolitionists talk about global veganism, we mean literally that. Mm. However, just one final note before taking the, uh, the next question. I would stress again that I, I still think by far the most urgent thing we should be focusing on now is closing factory farming and the death factories, because that is the suffering that we are uh, directly complicit in and paying for. Thanks, David. David, can I ask a quick follow-up to the uh, response you just gave to that question, please, sir? Oh, indeed, please. Thank you. Uh, been, I've been reading uh, online about transhumanists and, and what some people call futurologists, and the criticism that I'm reading of uh, views that might be similar to yours is that your views are based on a world that's yet to be coming about from knowledge that we don't have, and that it goes further to say that that's sort of a utopian view that means that we're ignoring real suffering in the actual present, and in its place, we're encouraging or allowing people to get involved in some dream-like process. And so we're taking our eye off the ball, in other words. So would you speak to that criticism? Uh, well, first, I would say that I have a lot of uh, sympathy with this view. I think our overriding priority right now is shutting down factory farming and the death factories. It is suffering that we are not just complicit in, but directly paying for. And uh, in one sense, anything that distracts from this, I said, is potentially damaging. Having said that, I do think it is important that we do practice long-term strategic planning. Already humans are systematically intervening in the rest of the living world, habitat destruction via captive breeding programs for big cats, rewilding. So it's not really uh, a case of should humans intervene or not intervene in nature. It's a question of what kind of interventions we should be making. And whereas at present there is a commonly accepted ethic of so-called conservation biology, I think in the long run we should be aiming for a compassionate biology. Uh, and they're the furthest reaches of the abolitionist project, by which I mean ultimately phasing out the biology of suffering throughout the living world certainly are science fiction. There are all manner of interventions we can practice if, if we choose to do so uh, right now in our wildlife parks that will alleviate suffering. But yes, back to your original problem, I think it is absolutely vital that we, uh, we focus uh, in by what is by far the greatest uh, source of severe and avoidable suffering in the world at present, namely factory farming. David, would you agree that in some ways when people talk about this idea that 
Tom Reagan has, and I respect him very much, and he says that we ought to just let other animals be. It seems to me that that is based on some idea that human beings aren't part of nature or that we're going to be able to live wholly apart from other animals in some way that I just don't think matches up with reality. Am I wrong to think that? Unfortunately, yes. Anyone knows the population, the human population is going to go on it, uh, expanding until it reaches perhaps between 10 and 12 billion. If things go on as they are today, essentially there aren't going to be any large terrestrial vertebrates alive outside our wildlife parks. So in one sense, I think stewardship of nature is, is going to be thrust upon us. And I think in most things, we're pretty selective. Intuitively, what is natural is good and what is unnatural is bad. But even the strongest advocates of the, nat of the natural tend to make this position where we're in clothes. And when it comes to, for instance, members of other races, we, we wouldn't, I hope these days at least, say that, well, yes, if one feeds people, if there is a famine uh, in Africa, it will just lead to uh, overpopulation and more suffering let them be. I think just as we aim to extend the, the principles of the welfare state to members of other races, we should in the long run be doing the same members of other species. Far far easier to do it, let's say, for elephants than, it's, than, it, than it is, uh, inverted commas, lower down the phylogenetic tree, but uh, ultimately yeah, it's possible, technically. That critique that uh, Tim mentioned is uh, contained in Sue Donaldson and Will Kimlake's new book, uh, Zoopolis. They're critiquing established animal rights theory, which they call art, for precisely that kind of reason that, that we can't just, as it were, behave as though we're other nations. But one question I wanted to ask you, David, in, in terms of your answers so far, you've concentrated on factory farming rather than, say, just farming. Is there a reason for that, and wouldn't wouldn't that be criticised um, by some as say maybe welfareist? Um, I mean, welfare welfareism is a, is a, is a, a, a charged uh, term. Yes, I, I should uh, our farming practices uh, in, in in the broadest sense, but uh, I suppose I was yes focus focusing on what I regard as the greatest evil as all uh, of all but of course there are many forms of human exploitation of non-human animals that, that, that don't consist in factory farming I was just looking at the uh, yeah the, the greatest and most readily av uh, avoidable source of suffering understood David earlier you spoke about types of intervention that may alleviate suffering now could you please elaborate on that something like for instance contraception until Recently, an expanding elephant population threatened, for instance, to lead to ecological collapse in the Kruger National Park, and so it was the practice to use this euphemism culling, which is incredibly cruel and distressing, whereas if instead one uses fertility regulation, it, it's possible to uh, make sure that only sustainable numbers of elephants can flourish. Now one can one can argue that uh, large numbers of humans have no business trespassing on land that was once free for elephants to roam. But once again, I, I fear this is this is impractical. So long as elephants can only survive and flourish within limited areas of Africa, essentially national parks, there's a choice. Either one uses culling or allows large numbers of elephants to starve to death, and it's a pretty grisly 
business because essentially the elephants don't get enough to eat and then collapse and can be eaten alive by predators incredibly unpleasant or alternatively one uses the technology of contraception which uh, is relatively low-tech, not particularly expensive. If we wanted to run the equivalent of a welfare state for, for you know, the, the half a million odd elephants in Africa, it would yeah, cost several billion dollars a year to do so, but uh, the risk of, of, of cheap populism compared to several trillion dollars we've spent propping up the banks. It's a, a matter of, of priorities. Which contraceptive methods would you favour? Once again, this ultimately I would regard as a technical question that one would want to bring in the services of medical experts, immunocontraception specialists, veterinarians. Um, one would want something as non-intrusive as possible and uh, reversible. So I have no strong feelings either way uh, on the precise methods and there is sort of immunocontraception is, is, is the one that has been most widely studied. I mean, there, there are complications too in that a, a non-human animal that cares for his or her, uh, her young that, that isn't allowed to have offspring, that is potentially a source of uh, suffering if maternal instincts are not, not being uh, expressed. Um, but equally, of course, losing one's uh, offspring slowly uh, uh, starving or being ravaged by a disease or predators is equally profoundly uh, uh, upsetting too. And I think, uh, yes, there's a lot of uh, ev evidence that elephants, for instance, the structure of, of their brain, they suffer profoundly. Um, sorry, I rather dodged your question, but this is, <laughs> I regard as a, as a matter for specialists, and it should be, yeah, as I said, done in the, in, in the least intrusive way possible. Um, Dave, I'd like to ask you to comment, please, on a quote. Lee Hall, referring to free-living animals in her book, On Their Own Terms, says... Contraception might involve less physical pain than another form of animal control, but does involvement in the manipulation and control of other animals mean unintentionally accepting the human agreement that other animals simply must be kept in check if not used for food, clothing, entertainment or objects of curiosity? I can respect that view, particularly, uh, as I said, looking at uh, human history and the treatment of human animals. But last century, at least, uh, many people, particularly right-wingers, would use identical arguments for us in the West not intervening with members of other races in the, in, in the third world and imposing our values upon them. Purely in terms of intensity of, of, of suffering, the intense, any suffering or inconvenience involved in contraception is negligible, whereas losing one's offspring to disease or predators or probably most likely simply slowly starving uh, to death is horrendously uh, uh, unpleasant for both uh, mother and uh, the juveniles alike. Thanks, David. David, I would have thought that uh, one of the questions which would be raised about contraception in most animal advocates' mind, I don't know if you've looked into this, is the fact that surely vivisection would be involved in its production or its um, development. This, admittedly, is not something I have considered in depth. In practice, all manner of procedures can be done in non-human animals without particular ethical worry, so long as it is done for the benefit of the non-human animal in question. And in the case of, for instance, uh, contraception and fertility regulation, 
obviously all, all manner of uh, animal advocates who take in animals that have been abused and so on. I don't think we would argue that all non-human animals have a right to reproduce. One, uh, yeah, sort of a co complex factors are involved in each case. Um, one, one is set, set, setting off these different constraints. David, how was it you came to sort of arrive at uh, this position and, and views and beliefs you currently hold? Maybe starting with how you how you came to become vegan. A third generation vegetarian. My grandparents, all four grandparents, were vegetarian. I remember my maternal grandmother, born in the reign of Queen Victoria, saying that I think she was about five or six, and yes, she was very fond of the family's uh, rabbits. But then she learnt one was for the pot, and became vegetarian. And yeah, I grew up a vegetarian, and when I see uh, uh, meat in the supermarket, I instantly think of the the, the death factories. But I hadn't really given uh, a great deal of thought to veganism. I was brought up to believe that that was the extreme position, that it didn't really cross my mind that there was cruelty and killing involved in uh, in, in milk, dairy products, and eggs. And so it was only in my uh, adult life that I... Uh, became a vegan. Uh, I wish I could say it was completely effortless. I know some people just make the transition and psychologically feel much better for it and it would be very convenient if I were to t tell you this is the case. In practice, I chopped and changed and couldn't work out why I didn't feel as, as, as psychologically healthy uh, at first on a vegan diet as I did when I still ate eggs. In the end, I came to the realization that I was one of these people who actually do uh, well on a high-protein diet. And once I had identified this, it, it's not a problem. But yes, whereas I think one can get away with being a lazy vegetarian, no problems. I do urge anyone who is going to become a strict vegan to, to just to mug up on a little uh, nutrition and, and spend time doing so. In terms of my, my wider views on phasing out suffering throughout the living world, yes, that's said once again, from, from quite an early age, I had brooded on the possibility of, of, of yes, would it ever be possible to phase out the, the, the cruelties of nature? At first, I thought it was going to be technically infeasible. It seems just the nature of a... Of a, of a food chain that it's completely unavoidable that you have sort of mass starvation, predation, and all the cruelties of, of nature. And it unfortunately would strike me as ecologically illiterate to believe otherwise. But when I started studying and thinking about the issues, I realized that from a technical perspective, at least, uh, suffering, uh, disease, and predation are going to be optional. And though one must very carefully distinguish between advocacy and prediction, uh, yeah, I came to believe that there's going to come a time later this century or next century when we're going to have to make some very hard and difficult decisions. Do we really want to sustain the cruelties of nature and suffering in, in the rest of the living world um, simply because this, was, this is the traditional order of things?
Susan, we encourage our members to forward questions for podcast guests. And I have a few here for you to ask first from Lynn Yates. The first question is, David, you profess to be anti-speciesist, yet you are apparently advocating techniques that will be targeted on specific animals, namely top predators. You're deliberately selecting species which these techniques will be used against or upon. Surely this is speciesism in itself. Um, I think if it's a case of Robinson Crusoe, one has no right to trespass on the freedom of Robinson Crusoe. However, if it comes to a person or a race or members of a species that are directly harming others, then one has to consider all parties involved. In the case of something like predators, such as lions or crocodiles or snakes, yes, I would say that ultimately we want to uh, genetically and behaviorally tweak them so they are not severely harming herbivores um, because I mean, we rightly, when it comes to serial uh, killers in, in our own society, uh, protect uh, their victims by, unfortunately, locking up the serial killers. Now, in no sense can one say that a, a lion uh, or a crocodile or a snake per is, in any personal sense, morally guilty or responsible. They don't understand the implications of what they're doing. But from the point of view of their victims, it, it really is completely academic. Who is causing such uh, horrific suffering? So, uh, yes, I know many animal advocates do find disturbing the idea that we should be even contemplating tweaking uh, lions or crocodiles or, or snakes. But if you look at the issue from the perspective of their victims, then I think one will, yes, will come to, come to a different view. Thanks, David. I have another question here from Lynn as well. Lynn's second question is, are you aware of the imbalances caused by the removal of top predators, including the emergence of many more illnesses and deformities within the remaining populations and the destruction of habitat? Yes, this is one reason why this cannot be done uh, in, in isolation. Any compassionate management of, of, of nature, compassionate biology needs to be done on a cross-species basis. In terms of the accumulation of possible harmful mutations in, say, herbivores, if they are no longer being uh, preyed upon, let's say, by uh, lions or hyenas, yes, potentially this is a problem. But equally, if one is taking a compassionate interventionist line, one can be ensuring uh, the health of the herbivores in question. Remember, the same argument that can be used about the possibility of harmful mutations occurring in herbivores if, if we do this can and have been used in the case of, of humans and the principles of the welfare state. One will be told by right-wingers somehow that this will be uh, allowing the weak and the infirm and the def deformed and the handicapped survive and this will be uh, uh, somehow weakening the gene pool. In practice, we're going to be using the new biotechnology and reproductive medicine to actually phase out nasty conditions like cystic fibrosis, for instance, via pre-implantation genetic diagnosis and the like. And likewise, within our wildlife parks, if one is taking the approach of compassionate stewardship of nature, one will actually be caring and enhancing the health of, of, of all the sentient beings therein. Clearly, it is much easier technically to do so for the large terrestrial uh, vertebrates, but one has to start somewhere. 
Um, and uh, yes, uh, other things being equal, uh, larger brained creatures, human and non-human, uh, uh, tend to uh, suffer more. Thanks, David. I have one more question here from Lynn, which is, as I understand your ideas and proposals, for practical purposes, you'll not be intervening in the predator-prey relations in the oceans, and for the same reason, not intervening in the relations of others in top predators. However, is it not the case that your ideas must rely on and involve the control of whole ecosystems? Intervening in only parts seems to be a disaster in the making. In practice, if, and it's a big if, that the principles of compassionate biology rather than conservation biology are applied, they're likely to be, do, uh, to be done so on a pilot basis in individual wildlife parks. Obviously, I don't approve of zoos. Nonetheless, we know that within zoos, there is uh, in-depth veterinary care, genetic matching. Um, but later this century, the same principles can be extended to terrestrial habitats and ultimately, I suspect, the deep oceans. But in a sense, this will be, as I said, if, and it's a big if, principles of compassionate biology are extended to the, uh, the living world, it won't be a case of philosophers philosophizing. It would need to be a combination of bioethicists, ecologists, population specialists, healthcare experts of all kinds. So it, it's not a, a case now of, of devising a, a detailed blueprint. All one really wants, to, uh, said my, my aim in a sense, is simply to provide proof of concept it's not as though some kind of detailed blueprint is now going to be enacted or anything like that. I would just very much like to see uh, the issues discussed. Thanks, David. I have one more question here from another AR Zone member, Tina, and her question is, if your beliefs became reality, they would sentence non-humans to constant interference from the human population, which is the opposite of respecting their dignity and autonomy. Advocating the use of our supposed godlike powers to control the lives of other species is surely a speciesist concept in itself. We have an absolutely miserable track record when it comes to caring for other animals, and assuming we even have the right to do this, it's violating the basic right of others to live their lives without our control. How do you justify giving one species the right to interfere with others' freedom under any circumstances when we've already done quite enough harm in our blundering efforts to regulate animals' lives? Right, a number of difficult uh, issues there. For a start, in some sense, should we intervene in nature, let's say, to wipe out malaria? And this involves systematically intervening with nature and quite possibly wiping out population of Anopheles uh, mosquitoes. Parallel there would be something like uh, uh, smallpox. We technically decided we were going to phase out smallpox and we have now done so. I can't argue with uh, anyone who says that humans' interventions in nature have frequently uh, been disastrous. Um, I would simply just, just ask uh, AR's own members, if you were in a position to rescue a non-human animal who was starving or trapped or dying, I would imagine you would do so in regard as extremely remiss just to, let's say, watch uh, a dog or a, a pig or an elephant drown uh, or die in the mud or something like this. And all I'm doing in the sense is, is highlighting the extent to which later this century we will have the same degree of power and complicity over the living world as we do now if you stumble if you were to stumble across a, a non-human animal who was uh, was suffering in this way 
with 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 power comes complicity. I mean, it said now it's it sounds like some crazy uh, utopian scheme, but later this century and beyond, it really is going to be a matter of, of choosing to to live or let or let die. And though one can talk about respecting autonomy and dignity of non-human animals, there is nothing uh, dignified or autonomous about slowly starving to death or being eaten by parasites or being asphyxiated or disemboweled or eaten, eaten alive. It is squalid and, and, and disgusting. Um, and that though I enjoy wildlife documentaries so-called as much as the, as the next person, I think one needs to uh, accept the fact that much of nature is extremely uh, squalid and disgusting. Thanks, David. David, can I ask, it seems to me that one of the lines of criticism that I'm hearing in the questions that our members have asked, and I certainly appreciate members asking questions, of course, but it seems that there's an idea afloat that if we don't do the sorts of things that you're talking about, and I think it goes without saying that even though we don't have the high-tech sort of solutions that you're mentioning, we already do the sorts of things you're talking about, you know, with the technology that we have. We already, we already intervene. We already set up, as you said, we already set up reserves. We already do things to try to help manage populations of threatened or, or species that are on extinction lists and so forth. We're already intervening in nature, and we're doing it, I, I would take it, for some of the right reasons in some cases. But it seems like the criticisms that I'm hearing coming from members are sort of assuming that if we don't do the sorts of things that we're already doing and that you talk about, that we'll get to we'll get to some paradise. If that's probably the wrong word, but we'll get to some place where we'll, we'll live in a vegan world that where everything is is just going to be fine. And it's it seems to me unlikely that that's going to happen anytime in the foreseeable future as much as I'd like it to be the case. Do you, am I making sense? And do you think that is part of the criticism? How shall I say? I mean, I've heard uh, some people express the idea that perhaps left long enough, global veganism would evolve naturally and that perhaps carnivores would eventually cease to eat meat and how their cat is really a quasi-vegan yeah, unfortunately, I just don't think that the living world uh, operates on uh, on those principles. So, yes, in some ways, I've got a rather dark view of, of, of nature and the living world. And I, yes, it, it's not the rather kind of bambified, idealized, uh, disnified view of nature that has been that has been fed to us on sort of wildlife documentaries. Yeah. I share I share your view, unfortunately. David, you've spoken in the past about using in vitro meat. One of the purposes would be to feed free-living animals. Um, mm -hmm. Could you please explain what your vision is and if you believe that that could ever become a realistic option? In the case of, for instance, uh, obligate carnivores, essentially it is not possible to uh, an obligate carnivore, happy and healthy, trying to feed him or her uh, a vegan diet and one low-tech option that does not involve genetic engineering or anything like that, let's say in the case of a cat, if you feed uh, catnip lace in vitro meat, which doesn't have to be of the quality of, of in vitro gourmet steaks or anything, but simply in vitro mince meat. Well, generally the issue of, of in vitro meat, I said I think 
everyone should aim to give up uh, animal uh, exploitation and ideally go vegan now. But in practice, as, as we know, it is extraordinarily hard to argue against moral apathy. And whereas if we were to rely on ethical argument alone to persuade people to give up eating meat and animal products, it might well take hundreds of years, I don't know how long, but uh, realistically it would take a very, very long time. In vitro meats offers the prospect of global veganism or veganism plus in vitrotarianism before the mid-century. Uh, otherwise, I would regard as just sociologically unrealistic. So yes, uh, I would strenuously uh, urge uh, the development of uh, in vitro uh, meat products uh, for humans uh, and their mass production will also allow uh, their use for uh, for, for non-humans too, not least uh, obligate carnivores. Yeah, I mean, I've always thought that maybe when vegans control the world that uh, carnivore animals could be fed on those people that refuse to be vegan. <laughs> This would solve two problems at once, wouldn't it? Really? <laughs> I, th I think yeah. that that might that might make the moral argument a little bit harder to sell, Ronnie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Should carnivores be harvested on a sustainable or a non-sustainable basis? Shut <laughs> <laughs> <Cut> that out, <laughs> David. You've said that you believe that anti-speciesism is based on the values most people already hold. Could you explain your views on this further? I need to qualify that in that I think most people, and I'd include myself, but most people are not really very consistent. One reads of, I mean, it was just, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, this, this man rescuing his dog, putting his own life in severe danger to rescue the dog and uh, most people would say if they, they saw anyone uh, uh, kicking or uh, abusing a, a dog or a cat would have very uh, uh, strong views on how perpetrators ought to be locked up and at the same time will be waxing indignant uh, at the same time as tucking into a bacon sandwich. Rather than saying that we are, which would be absurd, truly uh, uh, non-speciesist, I'd, I'd say that we, we're in a position where we can in many cases work with values people already hold. I mean, it's, if you try to persuade someone of some radically novel ethical theory, it, it's very difficult indeed. But if, if you work with values that people already hold, such as, yes, it is wrong to uh, cause suffering and cruelty and, uh, or, or something commonsensical like that, then one, I think, can get a long way. Not always, of course, but sometimes. Thanks, David. Yes, I agree very much with that. David, would you say as a movement then that if the movement is focusing on the moral argument, so-called, at the exclusion of more practical efforts, that it's making a mistake? I think it is absolutely essential that we somehow, somehow to uh, use both. There is a real danger if one is it's advocating in vitro meat that it somehow gives people somehow some escape clause feel that they've got a license to carry on eating meat and in, and uh, 
abusing and exploiting non-humans in the meantime, and yet if one relies exclusively on ethical argument, essentially hundreds of billions of non-human animals will suffer and die in appalling conditions. I would like to ask, David, is there anything that, that you'd like to talk about that we haven't talked about? No, I think we've touched on key issues. As I said, I'm, I very much hope that these issues are discussed and examined carefully. And this, this, this is what I'm most concerned that, uh, yes, maybe in the end we will decide we don't go down this route. Um, but the idea of phasing out uh, predation uh, and you know, starvation in the, in the living world is, is something that we do want to consider. Um, and that the idea of, of global veganism isn't as absurd as, as some people think. I said, uh, it is technically feasible. Um, whether we actually go down that route, I, I don't know. I, I tentatively predict uh, that we will. So yes, I mean, anyone who wants to follow up any of the issues we've uh, talked about, uh, please feel free to uh, drop me a line or we can discuss them further on uh, uh, AR Zone. I'd just, yeah, just like just to say a, a word of thanks to to Caroline and Tim uh, and uh, 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 Roger and Ronnie and uh, everyone who has uh, uh, been involved at providing this kind of forum in which we can uh, chew over some very difficult issues in a very uh, civilised way. I'd like to thank you very much, Dave, for spending your time with us today. It's been very interesting and very informative and AR Zone sincerely thanks you. Thank you very much indeed, Caroline. No, thank you, David.